Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. Um, we have a real pleasure on our hands today. We have Dr. Robert Kane, uh, Professor Emeritus here at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, Dr. Kane, I really, really want to thank you for taking the time out of, out of your afternoon to come chat with me. Um, you're probably the most notable thinker that I've had on, uh, pro- probably by far. So <laughs> you're, uh, you're an elite company there. Um, what I, what I, I want to start out with a joke, and I hope you'll appreciate this, is uh, as, I, as I've kind of n- negotiated this territory, because we're going to talk about free will, and perhaps if we have time, we'll talk about ethics. But in terms of, I really want to thank you for coming, because I, I believe that you would say that you had a choice in coming, correct? Yes, Is that I did. accurate? Yes, I did. <laughs> Whereas me, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I might... <clears throat> I would either be skeptical or I would say that you, you may have not had a choice, but we'll kind of, we'll unpack that idea <laughs> this afternoon and, right, right, right. and see what happens. Um, so first of all, I just, I think it'd be wise for us to start with sort of defining our terms okay. and kind of topics we're going to go into because not everybody that listens to the podcast is going to be, you know, sure. very familiar sure. with the concepts that we're going to be discussing. And, and right. I think in particular, that free will is something that maybe the common sense idea that people have is vastly different, I think, from what you encounter in the sort of ac- academic world or the, f- right. the world of philosophy. Right. Well, it isn't so different. Uh, it's out there in the world, uh, in the courtroom, in uh, everyday life. And did you do it of your own free will? <laughs> right. You know, you know, I mean, common phrase. And uh, unpacking it is very difficult. And there's a lot of scientific study about whether we really have it and so on. Um, so uh, it's definitely an everyday concept, something we all use, something we all encounter, uh, because it's deeply connected with things like uh, responsibility, moral responsibility. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it, it's very central to... Uh, to many, many things that we do. Uh, I teach a little bit, and I had taught a little bit in the uh, law school as well. Oh, really? Uh, and uh, that's very important in terms of uh, law, in terms of responsibility in the courtroom, in, in life, criminal or otherwise, uh, and in everyday life, uh, and in raising children. Um, uh, a to what extent do they have a kind of control over their own lives and what they do, or to what extent are they determined by their heredity and their environment and their influences by, uh, by others, uh, not just parents, but peers and everything else? And uh, are, they really, uh, are they really free? Are they really in control? Are they really responsible? Now, we all assume people are. I mean, we... And we assume that we bring up our children in a way as to say that horrible day will come when you're on your own <laughs> mm-hmm. and you'll be making your own life. But you have to learn how to, uh, how to think uh, and uh, how to choose for yourself and not totally just taking orders all the time. Uh, and uh, so we have to, uh, so to speak, build ourselves up into that kind of category. And... It's related to politics as well because uh, we supposedly live in free societies. Um, and are we really free or are we determined by 
our heredity, our environment. Uh, lately, the chief challenges have come from the neurosciences, what's going on in our brain. There's so much research now, and there are various people who've done research suggesting that um, something can be detectable in our brain long before we make, not long before, but milliseconds before we make choices. Well, that sounds like, uh, you know, uh, we're uh, unconsciously right. uh, making these choices when we think we are consciously making them. I think that research fails. The reason my work is so well known is uh, uh, around the world is because I have been defending for 40 years a more or less traditional idea of free will that we do have, at least at certain points in our lives, the ability to direct ourselves and our future and make ourselves into the kinds of persons we are uh, in a way that isn't already determined by what we already are and by those factors around us. I've been defending that view for a long time. That's the traditional view. That's something we all seem to assume, but it's been under attack in the modern age for quite uh, quite some time in the sciences. Uh, you know, there have been different challenges to it. Actually, going way back to the Greeks, uh, it was assumed that we were determined by fate. Uh, and then later in the Middle Ages and, and beyond, the question was, how about being predestined by God? And so there were theological questions, fatalist questions. And then when science came along, then it really got uh, uh, controversial in the modern era. Uh, that science somehow shows everything is determined by the movement of the particles, by everything else. And uh, uh, so that was a challenge from physics itself, and that everything was determined uh, according to Newtonian physics. A little more complicated today because we've got uh, quantum theory and other kinds of theories which allow uh, for non-determinism, but even there's still a lot of controversy about those. And a little later comes along uh, uh, biology and evolutionary theory. You know, aren't we determined by uh, our evolutionary development? Uh, uh, you know, that uh, 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 evolutionarily I was made to be what I am. People nowadays are uh, uh, sending off their uh, genes to their saliva or whatever it is to these gene things as if to say, um, hey, if I have this and that background and so on, I'm going to be this and that sort of person. To some extent, it's true. Uh, but to what extent can we make ourselves into something different than we were determined to be uh, is, uh, is a big issue. Then a little later, along comes Freud uh, with the unconscious, and suddenly people are alerted. Before the 19th century, there wasn't too much talk about the unconscious and what was going on below our level of consciousness. But from, from that point onward with Freud and others, there was the worry that, hey, we're really governed by unconscious motives and forces that we're totally unaware of. Nowadays, psychologists talk about what they call confabulation, which is what, uh, what happens when... Uh, when people give the reasons for their behavior that really aren't the real reasons. You know, <laughs> um, I didn't do it because I don't love you, or <laughs> I didn't do it for this reason, or I didn't do it for that reason, and why did I do it? And, 
uh, and their motives really are, the real motives are really different than the ones they give. This is called, like psychologists call this confabulation. And they have found it in all areas, you know, a lot of areas. So we have psychology nowadays, and we have uh, psych um, um, psychiatry and, and all that, and the unconscious mind. And then the latest thing is in, uh, in the neurosciences. And we've now got, you know, the neurosciences are big, they're studied now everywhere, and they are showing us that uh, how the brain works and how we think and how we don't think. And uh, as I said, there are some uh, research suggesting that uh, our brain is making decisions before we even know it. Uh, and uh, we're not conscious of them. Uh, and so there's a very strong strain in modern neuroscience and so on to say that uh, we are not free, really, we're not even in control. It's a further development of the idea that the unconscious is, but we're not conscious of what's going on in our brain. We have no idea uh, about neurons or whatever until somebody tells us to. Right. Uh, so, so that's the latest thing. And notice that there's a trajectory here of all the things human beings find about, out about what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak, threatens our uh, free will and our own control of our own uh, destiny in our own lives. So there's been a whole history of this. I mean, it even goes back to the uh, ancient times. Well, I, I mentioned fate, uh, and a lot of the g Greek tragedies are about we were fated to this and we don't have uh, control of it. Uh, uh, but it also there were some very sophisticated philosophical debates back then the Epicurean philosophers who wanted to believe in free will uh, said that there would be no room for freedom in nature if the, if the uh, uh, atoms, they were one of the discoverers of, of the, or at least the first to put forth views about the fact that everything was made up of small atoms. Um, and. Uh, uh, if the atoms didn't sometimes, as they put it, swerve from their appointed paths, if, if, if they never did this, uh, there would be no room in nature for free will. There would be no opening. And, uh, and then their opponents, the Stoics, uh, who were determinists, came back and said, well, wait a minute. Uh, uh, how could uh, a chance swerve of the atoms help us with free will? Free will is not chance. And there's a big dilemma here that goes back to ancient times. It looks like free will isn't compatible with determinism, but it doesn't seem to be compatible with indeterminism <laughs> right. either. And those are the only two possibilities, because what determinism means is this. It means that at any given time, let me put it this way, given the past uh, and the laws of nature at any given time, there's only one possible future. So let's see, where, where was that? The Ep Epicureans said that, and then the Stokes came back and said, but how could chance be free will? Uh, and that's a very ancient dilemma, and it's still with us in a way. Uh, and uh, uh, basically, uh, the, uh, the dilemma is that uh, it 
seems that free will, oh, oh, I was, I remember, I was defining determinism. Determinism is the view that given the past and the laws of nature at any given time, there's only one possible future. So indeterminism must me mean that uh, at least sometimes, given the past uh, and, and the laws of nature, there are multiple possible futures. There's um, forking paths uh, into the future. And somehow or other, free will means we're the ones that choose which one to take right. in those forking path situations. Uh, and, and that is, I think, what free will is. That we do this. As a matter of fact, this image of forking paths comes from a uh, famous short story by Jorge um, Luis Borges, you know, the uh, Argentine, I think he's Argentinian or Brazilian writer. Uh, and he called it the gar Garden of Forking Paths, and he raised questions in this story. Borges is B-O-R-G-E-S. Uh, he raises questions in this story about, you know, whether we have free will. Uh, uh, we're in a garden of forking paths and so on. Are we the ones that decide which ones we take or we don't? And he, it's a very nice short story he made of that. And sometimes writers nowadays on free will um, mention this phrase, the garden of forking paths, so they talk about forking paths. So anyway, indeterminism says giving the, given the past at any given time and the laws of nature, there's more than one possible future. And, and that's the way it is in physics, in quantum theory, right? I mean, an elementary particle, a radioactive atom might give off uh, particles at different times, uh, but uh, at any given time, it might give one, let's say it might give one off in this direction or this direction or one with a certain spin or some other spin. And what they mean by saying that that uh, uh, theory is indeterministic, some hold it is, many hold it is, uh, is that um, uh, given the whole past, you won't know whether that particle comes out at this time or at some other time, uh, what direction it might come out, uh, and, uh, and so on. So different paths outward, so to speak, and maybe it'll ha it might have different spins, and you can't predict that either. Uh, and that's what indeterminism means. But that's just chance, and as the Stoics said in ancient times, um, uh, you know, how could that be anything like free will? We have to have a control over that. So we got a complicated situation here. If we're going to really have free will in a way that's not determined, we're going to have to be able to choose and control which path we go down. It can't just be a matter of chance. So there's a really deep and dark dilemma here. Uh, and many modern thinkers have argued that we cannot have free will at all because it's not compatible with determinism. It's not compatible with chance either. It's not compatible with indeterminism either, which means we can't have it. So there's a growing number in the philosophical world of so-called free will skeptics, and they don't believe we can have it one way or the other. The dominant view, however, is the view of people called compatibilists, and what they say is, well, no, we can't have it if it's just chance. Uh, but still, we are free. We can be free, uh, even if determinism is true. So the, the idea is that 
free will is compatible with determinism. That's the idea. And that's really the dominant view uh, among scientists, even philosophers, and has been for a very long time, starting in the 17th century, I would say. Uh, it started to grow. Um, it's the dominant view because it solves the problem in a way, in a very easy way. Well, we don't have to worry about it, uh, in effect, because uh, it doesn't matter even if we're determined. Now, why would they say that? That seems, at least, it might seem to people to be not a very uh, intuitive, uh, uh, but uh, what they say is, well, what we're really interested in here is freedom, freedom of action, right? Um, and what freedom of action comes to is that we are able to do what we want and what we choose to do without any constraints. That's what we mean by freedom in ordinary political and everyday terms, that no, there are no constraints on us. We're not tied down. We're not being coerced. Nobody's holding a gun to our head. Nobody's stopping us doing what we want to do. Nobody's preventing us, uh, and so on. So in other words, it is the absence of any kind of constraints which would prevent me from doing what I want or desire or choose to do. And that's what freedom means, they say. That's freedom of action. Uh, and surely we can have that even if determinism is true. Even if we are determined to want what we want, we're free if we can go about and do what we want without anybody oppressing us. And that's the kind of freedom that people talk about uh, in political terms, in everyday terms, and so on and so forth. Uh, no a free society is one in which you have the freedom to do these things within certain constraints. And a totalitarian and dictatorial society doesn't let you do very, very much. They have control uh, over you. Or even if they let you do something, uh, uh, they have what uh, the political philosophers call domination over you if they can revoke the permission <laughs> at any time. Uh, slaveholders had control like this over the slaves, even if they gave the slaves some freedom to, you can do that or you can do that or have a party or, or whatever, they have domination over them. Uh, and that's a big notion, by the way, in contemporary political philosophy, uh, uh, the notion of domination, which doesn't mean you're actually preventing somebody from doing something, but you're the one that has the say. <laughs> as to whether they can do what they can do or they can't, and you can revoke that at any time. And that's something we uh, uh, feel is also something you can't have in a truly free society, uh, up to a limit, of course, within the law. So, so these compatibilists say that that's what freedom is, freedom of action, and, uh, and we can have that. And if, you know, we, we have it politically, we have it personally insofar as nobody's preventing us to join. And there's no problem there. So they want to argue that the philosophical problem, at a time they used to say it was the free will problem or the worry about free will, is a, is a pseudo problem. Uh, because we can have all the freedom we want. Daniel Dennett, who is someone I have, uh, I have argued with for a very long time, he's a <laughs> well-known philosopher, and he's yeah, probably heard his name. He, oh, absolutely. He writes, and he's... Uh, He's a tough-minded guy, you know, <laughs> and he's all science, 
and he's a very brilliant guy. Uh, and uh, I've been arguing for years on free will. His book on freedom evolves. His fourth chapter is a critique of my view. But he, he's, he talks about we can have all the freedom, he uses this phrase, which is now very common among flawed, we can have all the freedom worth wanting, <laughs> even if determinism is true. Uh, he's so easy, you know, a uh, pretty standard compatibilist. Uh, and uh, I've been arguing against these compatibilists for a long time. I think all these freedoms are very, very important. And many, many freedoms that we can have that are important and that we want to have are certainly consistent with determinism. We don't worry about, uh, you know, how the universe evolved and how everything was determined and how we were what we were uh, for many of our everyday freedoms. What we want to know is whether we can do what we want to do and all that. Uh, and they can give us that. So I grant to them and to people like Dennett, we've, we've by the way, uh, been back and forth many times, email and so on, and we are very good friends despite disagreement. <laughs> I like to say, you know, in, about philosophy uh, that uh, Plato said long ago that, um, let, me, let me get this right now, he said, yes, he said, the truth, the philosophical truth, he said forms, you know, there were capital letter forms, truth and goodness and justice and so on. And he said the truth, with the capital T, uh, is not something any, any one person can own, hoarding it from others like a pot of gold. <laughs> he says it's only something that we, we can participate in from our different very limited perspectives uh, uh, that we can participate in. And that's why it's, you have to do it with others, criticizing you, talking about it, uh, and that's why they, it's a kind of love, love of wisdom, which is the Greek philia, sophia, love of wisdom, which is philosophy. Uh, and I think that's right. So Dennis is a very good example of someone I have argued with and debated for a long time, uh, whether it's email or, or uh, in print. Uh, but uh, that's what you need to, to be challenged. Uh, and so anyway, he is a, is a is a very well-known compatibilist, and he used this phrase, we can have all the freedoms worth wanting, uh, even if we are determined to do what we do. And my, my response is, yes, indeed, you're right. We can have many, many freedoms that we want to have uh, uh, that, uh, um, even if determinism were true, even in a determined world, we would be happy not to be tied up or to be under an oppressive dictator or whatever you want to you wanna say. But there's one kind of freedom, I say, that we wouldn't have in a uh, determined world. And that's what I call, and what has historically been called, free will. Uh, these freedoms he's talking about are freedoms of action. I believe that free will is to be distinguished from freedom of action. And what freedom of will means is this. You could put it this way. Um, freedom of action is the freedom to, uh, how, let, me, let me get it right now, is, is the freedom 
to express in action the will you have, uh, the freedom to express the will you have in action. Freedom of will is the freedom to have the will you express in action. All right, so I'm free to express the will I have, but how did I get that will? Was it determined by my heredity, by my environment, by my upbringing? Is, do I have any input into it? Am I, to some degree, a will or a self-creator? So a free will is a will that is, to some degree, a will of your own free making or your own free creation uh, and, and, and so on. And, and there's two notions of responsibility, I believe, related to those. One is responsibility for expressing the will you have in action without any constraints, right? And doing it intentionally. Uh, and that's, uh, that responsibility to express the will you have in action is related to free freedom of action. Uh, the response, uh, but the other responsibility is responsibility for having the will you express uh, in action. And that is connected with freedom of will. And often happens in the courtroom, for example, philosophers have discussed some of these examples. But in a courtroom, for example, if you've had a brutal, say, murder uh, by a young man, um, and uh, you hear all the testimony, and let's see, uh, you want to eliminate all the reasons for saying he didn't do it freely. Was he coerced? Was he, was he pushed? Was he made to do it? Was he threatened? Uh, no, none of those things. Did he do it, as we say, of his own will? Uh, was he committed to do it? Yes, he has a vicious will. He's a vicious young man. Uh, and you've eliminated all the reasons for saying that uh, he was free to express the will he had. He just turned out to have a very bad, ill will. But then you wonder, well, but how did he get this will? And uh, often this comes up in the punishment phase of trial, where you say, well, well wait a minute, yeah, he's obviously a vicious young man. Uh, and uh, this comes up with various uh, diseases too, schizophrenic or, or uh, um, psychopathy, psychopaths, and so on. And you, you raise the question there, how did he get to this ill will that from which he acted? And here you have to look into the, his past. And in some cases, like this vicious murderer was on death row in California, who was written about by a philosopher in California named Gary Watson. He, very vicious, he was so vicious that this guy's name was Robert Alton Harris, a famous case in California. He was on death row and Gary Watson, who's, who I also know well, wrote this article. It was called Responsibility and the Limits of Evil. Um, and uh, this uh, Robert Alton Harris, young man in his 20s, he killed any number, of, raped and killed any number of women. And uh, he was so vicious that even the other guys on death row were afraid of him. Uh, 
And uh, it turned out, uh, when they looked into his past, he was rejected completely by his father because his father believed the mother had, he was, he had another father, <laughs> that the mother had been fooling around and he had another father. And, and uh, because the mother didn't want to lose the father, she rejected him too from a very early age. He tried to come, you know, hug her and whatever, and she pushed him away. Uh, and it's a very, very disturbed childhood, uh, leading people to believe that uh, uh, he, he couldn't have other than turned out in the vicious way that he did. And that's the kind of thing we look at when we look at the past. And it usually comes down to the punishment phase of the thing, and we wonder, we wonder once again, well, he's clearly responsible in this case for expressing the will and nobody pushed him into it or anything. Uh, but is he responsible for being this, this person who has this terrible ill will? And this is connected with free will, see? Uh, and it does enter our practical thinking. Um, uh, and it should. The trouble is it's very difficult to pin down because to some degree we are all sort of limited. My view is that free will in this sense, our ability to make ourselves, is very limited and it's always a matter of degree and it develops over time. So uh, one wonders sometimes where does it begin? I talk about self-forming actions. Uh, that's a phrase, uh, SFAs I sometimes call them, uh, that's a phrase that also has been widely used in the philosophical community these days. Um, and what I mean by a self-forming action is an action in which uh, your will is conflicted. So you could do this, you could do that. Like maybe it's going to be a moral choice. I give the example uh, of a, uh, a businesswoman going to a meeting important to her career. She's very ambitious. Got to get to this meeting. The boss wants to see her there and all this stuff. And she sees an assault taking place in an alley. And she's the only one around. <laughs> uh, and she's torn. What do I do? If I stop and I call for help uh, and I try to get the police or other people, alert people and so on, it might be a little dangerous too. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be late for this meeting. My boss is going to be really ticked off. I might not even make the meeting. The policeman might say, you got to stay as a witness and that sort of thing. Uh, and she's really torn. She, and on the other hand, she thinks, well, wait a minute, this is the moral thing to do. Uh, she, she has images of her mother, you know, teaching her to be a moral person and whatever. So we're, we have a conflicted will here. And she finally has to choose. And my view is in, it's quite possible that in those situations of a conflicted will, uh, torn decisions, some people call them, uh, that we are not necessarily determined by our past to go one way or another because our will really is divided and could go either way. So the past is not determined, it's influential and it's going to influence one way or the other. But at this point, she's going to be choosing to become a little more of a moral person or a little more of an ambitious person. And what happens over time, of course, you make the ambitious choice you, you probably know a lot of these people in business and so on where you work and, or, or, or beyond who you make enough 
of the uh, vicious, uh, ambitious choices. You become an ambitious person, right? Right. Make enough of moral, you do the moral. Aristotle said long ago, you know, that uh, uh, any 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 wise person, any sensible person knows uh, that if you uh, if you uh, uh, make selfish acts over and over, you're going to become a selfish person, and and if you make uh, good acts over a period of time, you're going to have to become a good person. That's the way it works uh, in human nature. But but that is a form of self-making, right? If we have a lot of these SFAs, uh, and that's the way I try to give a notion of what free will could be, uh, because the thought historically was, look, if you're trying to decide what to do, uh, and you finally do decide to do this, it must be because you realize that the uh, that the motives and everything else for this were decisive, you know. Should I do this? Should I do that? And I think about it, and boom, well, that's the obvious thing to do. But it isn't always obvious. <laughs> uh, sometimes we really are torn, and we could sensibly go in different directions. Uh, and I, that's where we do some self-forming. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I hold. Now, it's always a matter of degree. I mean, we don't know, we, we want to ask ourselves, and this is what jurors would and should ask themselves about a, a case like Robert Harris. Uh, okay, we see this is really tough, and I'm not sure I would have turned out any differently sort of thing. But is there any, along the way, could he have done anything to get out of this mess on his own? Did he ever really have any choices? Uh, and that's what we ask ourselves. And we wonder about that. We know it's a matter of degree. Now what's probably going to happen is they may mitigate the sentence on this guy uh, feeling that he had very little option, very little degree, or they might decide otherwise. I think that people who say it's irrelevant are uh, people I would not want to have on a jury. <laughs> Right, <laughs> right. Decide, <laughs> deciding the fate of someone you love. Certainly. Think of yourself on the other side. If he was your child, accused of this, and even if you knew he was guilty, um, uh, you wouldn't want to have that sort of person on the jury. I'm going to do the thing again. <clears throat> so this is what I mean by free will. And uh, some people have asked me, well, when do these SFAs start, you know? And now that story comes up. <laughs> and we've, uh, you haven't raised any kids yet, so uh, we have. We, we've raised children, and, and many of my audience, of course, obviously have. Uh, and it is an interesting question, you know? And I always say, I think somewhere between two and three, I think it's when when they start to think about whether they should do something. And once I was giving a talk, I'm, I've been talking on subject all over the world because it's a very big thing. I just came back from Europe on this, Cologne, Germany. I spoke at a conference. I was a keynote speaker there. But uh, um, I was once speaking, I've spoken at most of the universities of Texas. In fact, I was down at Texas State, oh, very, nice. where you graduated. It's a very fine place. One of my ex-students uh, teaches there in philosophy now. 
uh, and uh, I've been down there. But in this occasion, I was up at Texas Tech, and I was talking about, well, I think between two and three, you know, when the child really starts thinking about whether they're going to obey the parent, not obey the parent. And the chairman of the department spoke up and said, no, no, he says, I, he says, I got a, I got a youngster, you know, who isn't quite two, uh, and he's already doing it. He says he <laughs> sits up there in that high chair, and he used to just, when he wanted to, just throw the food down on the floor in a mess. Now, he says, before he does it, he looks at me, and I know he's thinking, <laughs> should I upset my daddy, <laughs> you know, or should I uh, just do what I want to do? And he's right, that's, that's where it all begins, you know? And the children have choices and so on. Uh, now, children at that age, because it's just starting, the self-forming is just starting. Children at that age, um, they're not very responsible. I mean, there was some woman a while back who took her child, he did something bad, and she took him down to the jail to scare the heck out of him. That, <laughs> but that's not what you do with a young child. But you might say, oh, no dessert tonight, you know, or go to your room, or whatever. Mild punishment and so on. Because there's two things you can do wrong here. You can have the feeling that they never uh, are, uh, uh, that they're too much responsible, rather than just very minimally at the moment. But another mistake you can make is not to hold them responsible at all. <laughs> for these earliest probes because as Aristotle says, it's, being, it's by being held responsible in the earliest ages as we develop that we become so over time and that we think about these things and we gradually uh, accumulate uh, some a self-formed will. Uh, and that's really what I mean by having a free will. So then later now when we act, sure, we, we, we we want to be free in all these other senses, but in the end, we want to know that we were acting from a will that is to some degree at least, some significant degree, a will of our own free creation, free making. And that's what I mean by a free will. So when we say, I did it of my own free will, I read that is, yes, I did it of my own will, nobody forced me, uh, but it was my own free will in the sense that it was a free, it was a will of my own, uh, to some degree, of my own free making from having grown and developed and whatever. Another question people ask me uh, at conferences is, uh, 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 don't we make less of these self-forming actions as we get older because we come become fixed in our ways and stuff? Uh, and I, I always, I got this question in London at the Aristotelian Society about two years ago, but I, I often get it. And I always look around the room and all, at all the white-haired <laughs> white men and women, you know, uh, and, and usually there's a mixed audience. This was a large audience, the Aristotelian Society at the University of London, and large audience and so on. But I looked around and I said, well, I see a lot of white-haired types <laughs> over here. And I said, let's set them, these young people straight. <laughs> I said, the fact of the matter is, you have more of these SFAs as you get older because you, you don't have all the same um, energy in what you used to have. I can't, I can't stay up all night, you know, when I, because I have a new thought or something. I have to discipline myself. 
uh, to go to bed. You have to. You have lots of difficult uh, issues that arise that you couldn't do anymore. You have to change your habits, uh, taking medicine, uh, uh, disciplining yourself uh, with exercises, and and then you have to have difficult questions. Should I put my 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 mother's been very ill. Should I put her in a nursing home or shouldn't I put her in a nursing home? Difficult questions, you know. And then you have problems even with your children. Should I tell should I tell my son that this woman he's going with is the wrong girl for him? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Or should right. I stay out of it? Because that's what he'll tell me to do, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, uh, so, and and then with with your spouses, uh, she, my wife is is old. And she has her own problems, and we have to discipline ourselves with regard to each other. Uh, so I say no. You, in fact, you you have more as you get older. It's very discouraging for the young people, but all the older folks in the audience will usually nod, <laughs> and so on. But anyway, that's a good practical way of looking at what I mean by by free will. And you see, these compatibilists don't think we can have it because they say that these self-forming actions where you can go in different ways, if they're, if they're determined, then that's what we say, <laughs> that you were, unbeknownst to you, you really were determined to go this way, but you thought you were thinking about it, right? Uh, uh, but the and the alternative, they say, well, you mean, well, it was really undetermined. It was like chance. You just sort of like flipped a coin, uh, and that's no good. So they reject that. Uh, so they say, we can't have them, uh, but we can still have all these other freedoms. So what? All we we'll just stick to the idea that nobody coerced the person, nobody stopped them, all the free action part, which we grant, right? But this idea that we formed our own will in some way that was not determined, uh, they say, no, we, we can't really have that. Uh, there, there are different ways they try to get around it. I think it loses, I think it leaves something out. In other words, most of the freedoms we were worth wanting, is choose Dennis' phrase, are compatible with determinism, but there's one, this one isn't. And this is a big one, this is free will, this is some uh, self-creation, I like to call it. Free will is a kind of self-creation, uh, that you weren't created by the world and everything around you. Uh, you were at least to some degree, and it's always a matter of degree, and it's always limited, uh, self-created. And the issue is, is an important one in religion, too, of course. You know, you got the predestination problem. On my view, free will and predestination, they don't mix. If God predestined us, that's another form of determinism. Uh, and uh, can't be, uh, I don't think, religiously speaking. I think you have to say, if, if God gave us free will, some say, uh, to make our own choices, uh, and decide for ourselves whether we're going to be treated well or not in an afterlife, um, uh, then uh, if that's the case, um, then uh, God's going to have to get some leeway in the universe. Quantum theory somehow or somehow or other get it in there, even in the brain. And... Uh, and that's going to be so-called free will defense against. It's also a defense 
to some degree against the problem of evil so that the evil that comes about from human actions at least uh, is due to humans and not to God. <laughs> uh, so there's another, uh, uh, there's another issue uh, uh, there. But once again, uh, even though as I am a religious person, but a generally uh, uh, not very orthodox in many of people would say anyway, not very orthodox in many of my religious beliefs, but the point of it is uh, that um, I certainly don't believe in a notion of hell because given my view that free will and our own control of our own selves is very limited, the idea of the complete and eternal punishment for a limited, uh-huh, I don't get that. Now, some religions have purgatory or something where you work it out, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, but the idea of boom, boom, uh, all good, all bad, that, that won't work as you see, I think. So at least I make those concessions to you know, science and whatever. Clearly, we are very limited by our heredity and environment. But I don't want to see people take the final step and say it's complete that we don't have any real say ourselves. And that's, that's what I've been arguing for. Uh, and uh, that's why I usually get invited everywhere because I'm defending the old concept. <laughs> uh, Nietzsche said, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche said that uh, the idea of free will in this ancient sense, what he called in the superlative metaphysical sense, uh, is the greatest self-contradiction ever invented by the human mind. <laughs> because of this dilemma of uh, indeterminism, determinism. I think it can be resolved. I have, a, I, have, I have worked out a very complicated technical account of how we can be the, uh, have these choices from time to time, and they, they can be rational and reasonable without uh, being determined, without it being decisive one way or the other. And I've I've related it in some ways. I think it re does require that there be some uh, indeterminism in the brain, uh, but uh, it doesn't have to be much. It ju can just be a little bit of quantum indeterminism in the in the neural passageways that it gets amplified. Under I, I say it gets amplified under conflict. When we do have a conflict, we, we there is this sense that things rev up, <laughs> and what when I going to do and so on things rev up in the brain and I say when they rev up uh, they amplify certain quantum indeterminacies at the synaptic level so that uh, our uncertainty is reflected in a genuine indeterminacy in our neural processes that's kind of the way I, I go down the road now that's pure it's certainly speculative but many of these people think there's no way even to think how it could be because then it would just be chance. And I say, no, it could be this way. And it wouldn't just be chance. It would be that you're making efforts to choose one and you're making efforts to choose the other. And the indeterminism is there because of the conflict. And uh, it means that it, it's not guaranteed that either effort will succeed, but one of them will. <laughs> and and that, what that will mean is this isn't, the, this isn't the only thing I could have chosen, but I'm ready to go with it. 
I'll take responsibility for it. Might have these or that effects on my future life, but that's what I'm going to go with. And I think that's, that's how we feel when we feel we make uh, free, free choices. Um, so th those are the, that's the way I go. I don't want to get into too many technicalities here. Right. Uh, but uh, obviously that's, that's the strategy that I undertake uh, on, uh, on free will. Okay. I, I definitely, I guess, want to unpack a few ideas and sort of just get, get your opinion and sort of see how these influence, you know, your, your thought process. So I guess the, the first and most basic would be this concept of, for example, the, the chain of causality that brought us together this afternoon. So going back to whether you believe it's the Big Bang, for example, or whether you believe that uh, a deity created us, the sequence of cause and effect events led up to this moment, right? Right. There had to be a sequence of events that trails back if, at any point during that right. causal chain. Right. A variable had been different. We probably wouldn't be here having this conversation. That's right. Are you already... So is is this idea, is this already... Are you already as, assuming this? That's a, already assumed as part of your argument, or how, how do you deal with oh, that? Oh, definitely. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm... A, you see... Let me put it, uh, let me step back a little bit. When I started thinking about these matters in the 1960s, I was in graduate school, and my, uh, my professor uh, uh, there uh, at, uh, it was at Yale University, by the way, uh, my, where I got my PhD, and my professor there was a very well-known philosopher, has been influential since his time. His name was Wilfred Sellers, and he was a compatibilist and a determinist, and very much a scientific thinker. He was a scientific realist. He made a distinction between the manifest image of humans in the world and the scientific image, the manifest being, you know, the way we ordinarily folk, folk uh, us folk think about matters, uh, but the scientific image is often different. Uh, and uh, he said, while we do have some confused notions about freedom and free will in the manifest image, in the scientific image, you can't make sense of this thing. It all goes back, you know, and wh whether determinism or indeterminism, you know, you've, we went through the argument. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I said to him, I was taking a course at the time, I said to him, well, I said, I'll be I, I'm going to try to show that you can, <laughs> you see. And I said, uh, I'll be back in three weeks. And he laughed. <laughs> he laughed and went back to reading his Sports Illustrated. Uh, but, uh, and then I, when I got to the door, I, like a, the usual naive and brash graduate student, I turned around and said, or at least by the end of the semester. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And he laughed again. Uh, but I, I, I like to make that joke because it's been 50 years <laughs> and I'm still working on it, you know, and I'm still answering objections and all the rest of it. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, no, I didn't want to lose the thread. Now, your question was about... I was just, I was kind of discussing... Oh, going back. Right, right? kind of the yeah, causal yeah. Yeah, the right. causal chain of events right, that right, sort right. of... Okay, so, no, no doubt about it, the big arguments against this are regress arguments, you know, that if you, well, but if you go back and then uh, your genes and whatever, and there comes a point at which you weren't even around to influence yourself and all this, and it goes back to the Big Bang and whatever. And yes, if 
we had a, if we still had a Newtonian conception of the universe and it was all determined right back to the Big Bang, as far as I'm concerned, it was all over. Immanuel Kant had a very difficult problem about this because he believed, he was kind of committed to the idea that science was Newtonian in his age. So he, he claimed that free will must be the result of what he called the noumenal self. There was a noumenal world beyond the world. And science just gave us the phenomenal world, the world we see. But there was this noumenal world behind it and so on. So a lot of attempts to uh, uh, make sense of free will historically, uh, given this scientific picture of the world developing from time when we had no control over it, um, a lot of those attempts appeal to some kind of mystery or other, you know, a noumenal self or a, or a, a, a immaterial uh, soul or a, uh, uh, you know, an uncaused cause or something special. All, always mystery. And this is one reason why compatibilists and scientific-oriented people like my uh, mentor, uh, who was serious about science, said that, no, it's... Uh, you can only make sense of it uh, by appealing to mystery of one kind or another. And that was true historically. There was always some kind of mysterious extra something that was going on there that scientists were not going to be able to get. And my whole thing in talking with Sellers here was that I wanted to do it within the confines of science without appealing to mystery, <laughs> right? Can we make sense of free will without uh, reducing it to mere chance or appealing to mystery? And that was the project. So, so to say, yeah, I want to, I, I want to go against what you say that, that we can't make any sense of it in the scientific image, uh, and and that's that's it. Now, when you try to put it into the scientific image and you go back and you look at the evolution of the universe 13 and a half million years ago or whatever it was, um, it's crucial that there be indeterminism in that story. So the, the advent of quantum theory was a huge thing here, right? So that um, it's got to have been the case that we had indeterminism all along there. Now, I, uh, I had been in contact with a fellow who works on free will at, uh, at Harvard, who uh, has been in the computer industry for many, many years, but he had a degree in astronomy there. And he studied with a fellow, a uh, very famous astronomer named David Laser, L-A-Y-Z-E-R-I. And I went up to see this fellow, Bob Doyle, who was very, very good himself, student of Laser, and then I had lunch with Laser. And Laser is very, uh, famous for uh, arguing uh, that uh, in the early stages of the universe, it would, there was all a lot of indeterminacy and just random movement of particles. Only after a while that things congealed <laughs> uh, into uh, planets and galaxies and whatever and things. And when it when that took place, it becomes more regular. But it isn't like it was determined from the get go. Uh, the, just after the Big Bang, it was chaos, if you will. And now we also, by the way, know about chaos uh, as something that is consistent with determinism, but is something that is unpredictable. And that's a factor, too, but I don't want to get into the complications of that. 
plays some some sort of role in my view too. Uh, but um, so uh, we have to have indeterminism in the story, and that's why I think the advent of quantum theory was crucial. Still, a lot of debate about. Some people think quantum theory could be given a deterministic interpretation, uh, and that's still a big issue. But you've definitely got to have that indeterminism in the very structure of the universe. And if you're religious, that would be the... Uh, God would create some of that <laughs> right. to get, make some room for free will, if nothing else, and the coming into existence of people. So we get into very deep and difficult questions, and we get into the religious questions here about evolution and all the rest. Uh, and certainly evolution involves chance. Right. Uh, and mutations are generally quantum uh, formed and so on. So you, you've got to have all that. So the, the idea of a regress was, well, if you go all the way back to the Big Bang, it's all determined, and then pretty soon you stop. You're not even there to have made yourself, and, and so on. You've got you to you, you have some view that there's indeterminism all the way along the line, and, and it's built into the nature of the universe, and even evolution involves it with mutations. And yeah, the, the fact that we're here involves a heck of a lot of chance <laughs> to begin with, right? And, and then all you need is the idea that chance functions in us uh, as well. It, we, we tend to resist that, but I think it's right. And, uh, and some people, the psychologist, Dean Simonton, I think his name is, who's written a lot about this, of how uh, um, creativity is necessary. Uh, to have some randomness in the brain. So you don't think along the same routes and so on that has opened up this possibility. And by the way, it's very well known among even neuroscientists that there's a lot of random behavior in the brain. Usually what happens with uh, neurons will fire when they get enough input from other neurons and so on. But sometimes they just fire spontaneously. And sometimes when they get enough, they don't fire. You <laughs> know, uh, there's a lot of randomness in there. Now, um, when I talk to Dennett about this, he, he says the usual answer is, but, well, that, that's pseudo-randomness. It's not real quantum randomness. And, uh, and with pseudo-randomness, it's interesting because there's always an algorithm. Computer people uh, will uh, put a program in there that will randomize the, the, you know, to prevent it from being decrypted. Uh, and the thing of it is, however, that's pseudo-randomness. There's always an algorithm. So if you're smart enough and you're clever enough, like the Russians maybe these days, <laughs> right, yeah, you can determine the algorithm. And an omniscient being would certainly be able to know that. Um, and, uh, and so uh, uh, so it couldn't be pseudo-randomness here if you're religious because you got you got an omniscient decryptor uh, here. So I, I mentioned this to Dennett, <laughs> and he said, well, he said, he said, uh, there's, a, there's a game they talk about in this case called, I think it's called Sticks and Bones, I don't know what it is, but uh, decision theorists and others discuss it where uh, you play a game and in order, there's no chance of winning a game unless you randomize your answers or your behavior so the other person can't 
can't see what you're doing. Uh, and uh, it's called sticks and bones or something. And, and randomizing your behavior is crucial, too. You, you get, get defeated because the other person can read what you're going to do, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so Dennett, his final, the last email I got from him quite some time ago, uh, he said, well, I'll tell you, he said, if I ever have to play sticks and bones with God, uh, I will buy your view. <laughs> but I don't expect to ever have to because he's not a believer uh, in the first place. So that kind of puts it in a, in a nutshell here. Uh, but uh, randomness does play an important role. Uh, and, and this is generally, so it's just a question, is it pseudo-randomness, is it real randomness, uh, and whatever. I find it kind of puzzling thinking about it's being pseudo-randomness because who's the computer? Who's the computer scientist that put the algorithm in? Is it God or what? You know. So that's an interesting question. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, there is uh, this element of randomness. And here's another thing. <clears throat> I I have met in Europe at a conference or other uh, a fellow named Martin Heisenberg. Uh, now Martin is an old fellow, he's, he's about my age, in fact, we were born about the same year. Uh, and his father is Werner Heisenberg, one of the inventors of quantum theory, you know, the guy. Uh, and uh, Martin uh, is not a physicist, Martin is a biologist, and he's a very famous one. Uh, I, think, I think he's in Berlin, but I'm not sure where he is. Uh, but I communicate him with by email from time to time. But uh, Martin, um, works with uh, primitive creatures. And he develops a developed a theory which he described in, in a magazine called Nature, uh, in which the evolution requires that even uh, primitive creatures m must be able to randomize their behavior to survive. And he, he'll give example, for example, like even an amoeba or some, some really primitive organism will have to say, uh, where will I get food? Let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. Let's just random, you know, let's flip a coin, try this, try this, try, till they find it, okay? Here's another thing, too. It's like that sticks and bones games. Uh, creatures have to randomize to defeat predators. So the predator don't know can't predict what they're going to do. It's the predators have been programmed by evolution to have a good sense for what their prey is going to do, and the prey, therefore, have to develop random, randomizing techniques to thwart the predators. So uh, Martin Heisenberg has developed the view that uh, um, uh, randomizing um, is crucial uh, for survival. Uh, and uh, he himself, uh, though he doesn't do a lot of this in his writings, he's done some, believes that this is the beginning of free will, this kind of randomizing. It isn't free will, of course. He suggests it is. I told him, well, you're a step ahead of yourself <laughs> there. You know, uh, it, but it is a proto, as, you, as I think you can see, right? Uh, 
And uh, um, so that's another thing that factors into this whole story. So I mean, if it really were all determined back to the beginning of the universe, as you, you put it, uh, yeah, we'd have a problem, but hopefully it isn't. Right, and I think that one an astute point that you brought up is that, so if you are following that logic of this causal chain of events, going back to the Big Bang, well, there's gotta be a first, like there's gotta be a first cause, right? To begin mm. with, whether that be God or some other. Right. And so that sort of, I guess, un- undermines the logic of that entire line yeah, of well, thinking to some know, degree. Yeah, to some degree it does. Of course, uh, some people come along, like Hawking, I think, and is one of others, to say, no, uh, well, you don't need God, but you, uh, uh, because it could just happen, <laughs> you know. And, but th- this is another appeal to chance, I right. think. Yeah, right, I guess that's true. You know. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, not all will admit that there, uh, you know, there has to be something that created uh, it all started with a big bang, but it's very mysterious. Or what, you know, even from a non, I guess, I forget, let's say there's no deity, there's still a se- there still would have been some sequence, or it's random in which right. kind of the logic right. that right. we use breaks, uh, the logic right. that we have doesn't. Go right. beyond that. <laughs> right, and then there's that debate about intelligent design, too, right. you know, uh, where the response usually is from uh, the scientists that, uh, gee, the, the intelligence response argument goes that, well, this universe we have is fine-tuned to produce life and living things and so on. All the constants of nature are just the right thing. If they were a little bit different, we wouldn't get living things, let alone creatures like us with free will and stuff. So this is a so-called fine-tuning argument. And the usual response nowadays by physicists is that uh, there are multiple universes. And they, of course, have arguments for that quite independently of this debate. Uh, There are multiple universes, and we just happen to live in one of the millions uh, uh, that's fine-tuned, and naturally, since it's fine, we're, there's life in it because it's one of the rare ones that's fine-tuned for life. So there's a big argument going on there too. But one way or the other, uh, even if you know there were multiverse, there's a multiverse, which is a big issue in science these days. Um, there was uh, still be an issue that uh, 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 you know our universe is one that was tuned this way, and if it has indeterminism and part of it, the randomness and so on, is, is part of the whole story of evolution and everything else. Um, and the randomness that, is predetermined? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> predetermined that there be randomness. How's that? Yeah, <laughs> That's right. a, wow, yeah, that, that makes uh, my head spin. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so anyway, those are, some of the, those are some of the, and they're big issues for, for sure. Uh, that one's uh, generally the anthropic principle is kind of what that goes to. And that's basically the, uh, like you've uh, illustrated, it's the idea that if anything had occurred differently or if the variables for life were different, we that's wouldn't be right. here to observe the effects. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It was called the anthropic principle. And nowadays, a, a, the phrase often uses a fine-tuning argument. Okay. Uh, but that's that's interesting. Very good point. I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, coming from from my perspective, I, I would almost say that a, some of this is our language itself really 
you know, we're trying, we're struggling to understand the universe with a language that is sort of not up to the task. Like our tool for understanding the universe is, is a poor one. And so this whole idea of causation to begin with is, you know what I mean? That's sort of evidenced in our, in our language and the structure of our sentences. You know, we have subject, verb, right. noun, or excuse me, uh, subject, verb, object, and things like that. So when a verb is modifying a noun and things like that that are tied into, I guess, this integral way that we interact with the world and trying to think out trying to think outside of language is just simply something we're always going to be bumping right. against that Basically, the yeah. threshold of what we can right. understand or describe right. with our current language yes that's that's an interesting point and we we have a lot more to learn i mean i i have uh i, I have a book uh well i've quite a, i've written a number of books but one of them was called through the moral maze uh searching for absolute values in a pluralistic world uh, that's another issue. That uh, set of issues I get into is the whole question of values. I don't know if we'll have time today. For, right? Yeah, I know for that. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I have gotten into that, and I had a, a chapter in there about religion, and I said uh, the thing about different religions fighting each other and claiming they've got the whole truth uh, is is a mistake. Uh, going back to that Plato quote, nobody has the whole truth. <laughs> Uh, we only have a partial truth because we have to see it from our own perspectives. And you're right, our perspectives is in very large part determined by our language. Speak a different language and it's the perspective and the way you see the world is going to be uh, somewhat different. Not, not only that, but perceiving just that we're human. We, we haven't encountered other intelligent creatures yet, uh, although, who knows, elephants and... and uh, dolphins and so on, but uh, are seeing the world in a different way. So we, we have these perspectives. Uh, and so when it comes to religion, I say, it's, it's really uh, strange and dangerous to be talking about your religion has the whole truth and therefore nobody else has the whole truth. I think if we push that notion in ethics and, and uh, politics these days, we'd be better off. Because the phrase I use there in that book, Through the Moral Maze, is, and by the way, I developed these ideas later in a later book called Ethics and the Quest for Wisdom. Those are my two basic books on ethics, Through the Moral Maze and Ethics and the Quest for Wisdom. Um, I developed uh, uh, this later as well, but in the, in the religious chapter of, of Through the Moral Maze, I say that... Uh, we, the way we ought to think about it is we, we have about as much knowledge about the final truth of these matters as the cavemen had about the stars. It doesn't mean we're wrong. It doesn't mean we're wrong. Um, and because the, the cavemen weren't entirely wrong about the, sky, the stars, they thought they were chariots of fire. Well, they are fire. <laughs> but did they know about nuclear fusion? <laughs> <laughs> right. right, you see, but it, it is fire. And so they weren't wrong, but they, uh, they didn't have the whole story. And that Plato quote, I think, is right, you know. Uh, nobody has the whole story because we, we have limited perspectives, and that's the way we ought to think about it. And in religious terms, I, I like Gandhi's phrase that uh, there are many paths up, up the mountain. Uh, and, but the thing is, um, he went on to say, or at least maybe this is my edition, I can't remember <laughs> whether Gandhi said it. If 
if you're going to get up there, you have to take one of the paths. So there's nothing wrong with, uh, I, I don't like to tell this to my students on matters of religion, you know, because I get a lot of students come into my office, um, you know, who, oh, well, they gave up their faith. And, and, and all sorts of different ones, you know. There might be Catholics, you know, or, or Protestants, evangelicals, uh, uh, fundamentalists, uh, and even in at UT, you know, at the University of Texas here, we have uh, quite a variety of students, uh, Buddhists and, uh, and uh, Hindus and uh, 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 Confucians and all sorts of things. And, and it's funny because many of them come in and say uh, that they had become skeptical of their faith in, in uh, teenage, right? And they didn't follow it anymore. They didn't know what they want to follow. It was, was a source of stress between themselves and, and their parents. And, and, you know, one would say, well, my folks want me to read the Bible and I don't do it. Or, or one fellow, uh, one woman came in uh, and she was Hindu, and she says, my father is always telling me I should read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, but I don't know, I'm kind of losing it. Well, I had a kind of, what I tell them, it comes out of this chapter, uh, uh, is, uh, look, you gave up your religion in teenage because you were getting a pretty watered down, probably bad, negative view of it. Uh, 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 I, what I would say is this, give it a chance. Look at the more sophisticated writers in your tradition. Maybe your father's right. Take a look at the Bhagavad Gita and really read it carefully or study with somebody and so on. Give your own religion a chance. Because I believe with Gandhi uh, that there are many paths up the mountain. But I also believe you got to take one of them <laughs> to get there, right? And it's got to be a specific one, because as you, you rightly said, we are limited in our perspectives and our way of thinking and our language uh, and so on. So you've got to take one of them. So give the one you were brought up in a chance by looking at the more sophisticated purveyors of it uh, rather than the rather crude version you may have given up when you were a teenager and thought it was a lot of bunk. <laughs> All right? Go back and look at it. And if, if you find it doesn't ultimately satisfy, okay, then look for something else and so on. And, and the other thing is, uh, this is my addition to the Gandhi thing. Um, if you've got to take one path up and you've got to do it, it seems to me, in a, in a tradition, and I think with a group, you could do it singly. It's spiritual but not religious, big thing these days. Uh, you could do it that way. But if you do take one of these paths, you don't have to worry about whether people might be getting up there by some other one. <laughs> you just have to worry about whether you're going to get up there. So the whole idea of making this big thing about, well, everybody else is wrong and they're all damned and they're all this and that and so on, is not something you should be worrying about. You should be worrying about whether you yourself have chosen something that is going to get you there. Anyway, that's, that's a line I take in that passage. And I like the, the Gandhian image, uh, generally speaking. Uh, okay, well, I don't know if, is that what you were, uh, I forget what the question, <laughs> question is, I'm losing my mind. Um, I'm trying to think. 
I don't know. I wasn't quite going to religion just yeah, yet. Yeah, well, no, I, I, I got it onto a religious thing, but uh, let's get back to where you were. I, I can't even remember. I was tr- kind of discussing language and how that oh, impacts. Oh, how language and how and that, that sh- kind of limits our ability to understand. Maybe, you know, we're always bumping up against sort of that That's barrier right. that we're not able to escape or, or what right. have you in terms of understanding. And so, I mean, I'm just to give you a little bit of insight about my own beliefs. Right. I have kind of taken a hard turn towards, I guess, no, I guess you would consider me a compatibilist, but probably the I'm very much so along the line of thinking that a lot of almost everything is predetermined, mm-hmm. and. A big part of that is kind of that idea of the causal chain going back to the creation of the universe. Right. But then I think, so that's that's kind of the base layer of it. Right, right. But I think you even, when you place, okay, so the, t- the time and place that you were born in, the culture, if you will, right. that, is, that is shaping who you are and who you become as well. So later on down the line, whenever you're making a decision, it may be there's you know there's potential for that indeterminacy at some point, but you're shaped by yeah. you know maybe something occurred and when you were in your mother's womb and yeah. you got a, an additional hormone or whatever, and that plays a role in mm-hmm. down the line when you're right thirty years old and you're trying right. to make a decision right. that plays a part in your neural chemistry. So, yeah, absolutely, uh, and 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 uh, you're right to th- you're right. To think along those lines because it is true and and uh, as I said some people in the past thinking about free will and stuff have said well we're totally free uh, uh, you know to do whatever we want and these influences we can overcome them completely no absolutely not if you try to reconcile free will with science and with what we know about the universe these days rather than trying to just give a mysterious account of it uh, you realize that that you're probably 90% right <laughs> in your thinking about these things. Um, but uh, I think the mistake to make is to simply assume it's all determined and it's all controlled. And there, 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 there is no windows. There are no windows here for us. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and so I just say, just think in turn, think the way you're thinking, because that's the right way to think if you're scientific, if you're going to take science seriously and not just reject it. Um, but just imagine that it's not completely determined. Those things that happen, maybe even in your womb, uh, in your mother's womb, um, uh, are going to affect you. There's no question about that. We're affected by our past. We're affected by. Uh, the biology there by uh, by the uh, fetal development uh, and uh, and so on and but but if we start thinking that it's totally overwhelming and that we don't really have choice I regard that as very dangerous uh, and because it it allows for the rationalization of very evil people to say well that's the I'm sorry that's the way I am um, and that's very dangerous. There is an Israeli philosopher by the name of Saul Smolansky who writes a lot on free will, um, and I know Saul also very well. Uh, by the way, I'm the editor 
of the Oxford Handbook on Free Will, which is the major, uh, res which is a major resource on this topic. And there's tw 25 or 30 essayists in there who are leading figures around the around the world uh, writing on the topic. And and I've edited two editions, one in 2000, one in 2011. But I bring together these things, and it's a resource. And and so, like Saul Smolensky, for example, has an essay in the Oxford Handbook because I got him. Dennett has one, and many other people who've written on the field have it. Well, anyway, Saul is very interesting because he's at the University of Haifa, and uh, he's a free will skeptic, and. Uh, <clears throat> So he doesn't believe we can have it, the usual thing, you know, oh, it's not chance or whatever. Or even, he's not necessarily a determinist, but it all goes back, just like you put right. it. You put it very nicely. Kind of like the ran randomness is predetermined. So yeah. Element, yeah, kind of bad of, idea, right? Yeah, right. He's thinking just like you. And even if there is a little randomness thrown in, that's certainly not going to be free will. That doesn't give us control. It takes it away, in fact. In fact, uh, these people like to argue... Uh, uh, randomness and chance gives us less control <laughs> that's true than determinism <laughs> see that's a common argument too I have to deal with that too it's like to deal with a lot of things in my field but anyway Saul is very interesting because he's a free will skeptic uh, and uh, so he doesn't believe we have it in a real deep sense and since he's a religious person uh, Jewish. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, Jewish, so to speak. He doesn't want to be, well, I don't know, I I, I guess he is. There are <laughs> religious people, you know, who uh, feel that, well, you know, it is determined, and so on. I don't know where Saul is exactly on it, but I do know he's a religious person. Uh, I, I takes it seriously anyway. Uh, and so he, he's written a book called Free Will and Illusion. And he says... Even though we can't have free will, he thinks thing, the world would be very, very bad if everybody <laughs> believed it, <laughs> right? I would agree. Right, okay, so good. That's, that's, <laughs> my, that's my feeling too, so that's why I'm on his side on this. So he says we should promote the illusion that we have. Well, of course, every, a lot of philosophers say, well, come on, come right. on, so, you know, <laughs> philosophers aren't into illusion, philosophers are into the truth. Very true. You know, and so, but, but then he's more sophisticated about it. He says, look, he says, I don't mean that we should actually, we philosophers should get out there like magicians and fool everybody. He said, the truth of the matter is, uh, most people believe they have it anyway, and we should not disabuse them of the belief they have. Uh, because he, and this is where I agree with Saul, uh, society I think would be in very, very bad shape. You have some very, very bad people around um, on Wall Street and everywhere, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, right. And all around the world, dictators and stuff. And uh, they cannot be allowed. Uh, I I think I say it in one of my um, one of my essays that uh, there are a lot of evil people in the world out out there to do uh, things, and the last thing we should tell them is that they are not responsible for being the way they are. That's the last thing we should tell them. So uh, Saul has a point. I just disagree with the fact that it necessarily we can't have it. <laughs> right. Okay.
I have two last points and then we can sort of wrap up. I don't want to take up most of your afternoon. Right. Um, one kind of what I thought when I was sort of preparing for the for the talk today was that the idea that free will only makes sense in the context of some element or some percentage, if you will, of determination. Yeah, oh, definitely. It, it, there must be a lot of determination going on. And just a question whether there's some leeway. Look, if I, if I have a couple of options, there's a forking path. doesn't mean I can take any path. You know? I, I have a woman debating about whether she's going to join a law firm, a big law firm in Chicago or a small law firm in Austin. <laughs> Uh, big difficult debate, uh, life choice. This is an, what I call a self-forming action. It'll determine a lot of how she, what kind of person she becomes, uh, and so on. Uh, and um, I have her, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting now, we were talking about, uh, what was the theme here? Oh, I was just mentioning that there has to be some element of determinism oh, 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 yes, yes. So for I, free, for right, free right, will yeah, to yeah, even yeah, make exactly. sense. I now remember the joke. I That's just so, it's so uh, counterintuitive right. when, whenever because, you're unpacking. Because, because of her past, she is attracted to these two offices. Right. But she's, of course, doesn't even consider anymore many other offices. I said, and she's not thinking about being a topless dancer in Seattle, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Uh, it's one of these two law firms. So, so the, our past is going to definitely limit us to various options, but the question is, does it limit us to one? That's what they used to say in the Middle Ages, that, that determinism was the view that everything is determined to one. Uh, um, but it is determined to, to a great degree, maybe two, three, four. Uh, maybe that help, will help answer that question. I just thought that was such an interesting, I, I, something that was just so counterintuitive to my, to my thought process. I was just making the assumption that, oh, well, it, if there's determinism, then there can't be right. free will just on, on the face of it, right? Mm-hmm. Whether there, you know, what degree right. that is, you know, right, you, you, we can argue that, of this, course. This is an important distinction you brought up by this question, which is, sure, there's tremendous amount of determination, but determinism means all the way. Right. <laughs> just one, determined one. That, that may help a lot of people because they, they may feel like, and you're right, Tremendous amount of determination in our lives. To deny it is is crazy. Uh, the whole past, the whole history, the genes, the what we know about evolution, everything, and so on. We are very limited, and you know sometimes it pushes us over the edge. I mean, and, um, uh, I have experience. We have personal experience here. My my oldest son. We had several children. Where my oldest son was a. Uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia at age 19. Uh, it, this is interesting, you see, because we had a lot of experience, so we had eight difficult years with him. He was in and out of jail because schizophrenics roam the city, you know, and and get in trouble with the police because their behavior seems strange and they're, they're usually pretty harmless. Uh, and uh, But he ended up in jail a lot of times and sometimes and and uh, so on. He was a really good kid, uh, and it was terrible to see him suffering through this whole period. Got a lot of help, a lot of friends in the in the Tex Tex Army, which is the Texas Association of Mental Illness, and so on. We were deeply involved in that, 
and he was making some progress, staying on his meds. Uh, he did, however, die uh, at age 27 in a fall from a downtown hotel uh, at a party. Um, and uh, the very night he fell, he called his mom on the phone and said he was trying to he was trying to uh, get off the drinking, limit his drinking, and also his smoking. These things sort of relaxed them uh, quite a bit. And he called his mom that night, said he wanted to be picked up, uh, and said, you'll be proud of me, I only had one beer tonight, out with friends and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he had also been controlling his smoking and so on. Um, and, uh, and so on. Um, but then we heard later the police came to a house later, the worst night of our lives. Oh, my God. <laughs> you I know. can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was an a supposedly an accident. Well, it certainly wasn't suicide. He was in a good mood, you know. Uh, but he had to go through the whole police thing. Were you home at the time? <laughs> right. <laughs> it kind of went like that. But anyway, uh, what I like to say about this is they think, well, schizophrenia, he doesn't have any freedom at all. But he had freedom of smoking, <laughs> drinking, keeping himself. He had a girlfriend for a while, uh, had to make some decisions about her and so on. And where they lose it is when they're under stress and they start hearing voices and stuff. And then, no. But they do have it. And then trying to keep on the meds and this kind of a lot of discipline, you know? So I always say there are leeways here. And that's how we hope to finally get him out of it. And as they get older, they, because he was, he was a brilliant kid, you know, he went to a couple of years at UT in computer science, uh, 3.5 or something like that, before he started hearing voices. So uh, it's a complicated business. But even, even you know, mental illness and stuff, we, we have to start thinking about Determination, yeah, a lot of it. But we got to work with people in that interval where they have some control over what they're doing. So that's a very important distinction that you brought up. W one final point, and then I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you go for the afternoon, <laughs> right, yeah. is um, that I, in kind of reviewing this, um, this topic, I kind of bump up against this. I kind of uh, use a metaphor for sort of science. So we have we have the quantum model of the universe, right? And then we have r relativity, right? We have general yeah, relativity yeah. and whatnot. Not exact, both correct, but both we haven't figured out how to figure out how to put them together. We haven't figured out how to put those together. So for me, I have these ideas like when I think rationally, I I feel like there's very little free will that we have available to us. I'm not sure exactly what what my position 100% is, right? I'm certainly skeptical. But then there's my day to obviously in my day to day life, I have to live as I have to make the assumption, or at least the, right. delude myself, or however right. you want to describe it, That's into right. pragmatically. Yeah. This is how I have to I have to That's behave right. as if there is free will. Yes. Yes. So I, I, I thought that was an interesting metaphor. I, I wanted to get your, your opinion on well, that. I think, that's, uh, I think that's a very common thing. It's a very <laughs> good point because even some sophisticated philosophers have done it this way. I mean, I told you about my mentor, the manifest image and the scientific image. Yeah, He's that's a, very... You know, he, 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 he often talked about the, 
the manifest image being a pragmatic and uh, and was very interested as I was in in American pragmatism, which was the major uh, philosophical tradition in the American thing. Americans are supposed to be pragmatic. Uh, William James and John Dewey and and C.S. Peirce and these other people and so on. Uh, whereas this this is a pragmatic thing. Uh, for my part, and the, that's the reason I sort of walked off his, out of his office that day figuring I'm going to do something about <laughs> this, is I, I find it difficult to live on the level of it's just pragmatic if I really thought <laughs> it was going the other way. Right. Uh, and, and I told you Saul Smolansky has his own way of, of doing that, which doesn't seem to work either. <laughs> you know, it's an it's illusion. Uh, but I would think that, yeah, it is pragmatic. Uh, and we have to uh, think and do this way. But my thought was, can't we think it through in such a way that, hey, it could really be? Now, we don't know. I mean, the future might tell us. In fact, there's a philosopher in California who's a compatibilist, uh, John Fisher, very well known. Uh, who likes to say, we, we wrote a book, four of us with different views, called Four Views and Free Will. Uh, and he said, you know, he said, um, uh, if down the road, six, seven hundred years from now, <clears throat> should be a headline in the New York Times, or it should be a big discovery, whatever news they have at that time on the web, <laughs> you know, uh, that... Uh, scientists have discovered that determinism is true, then Cain will have to give up his view. <laughs> but I'm a compatibilist. I won't have to give up anything. And my response was, well, uh, that's true, John, <clears throat> but that's because you have a watered-down view. <laughs> if you don't take uh, uh, risks, uh, you know, you don't uh, have much. So you have, a, you have a very much lesser view, it seems to me, one that doesn't really turn me on. Uh, and uh, indeed, I will admit that mine takes more scientific risk. But the word is that uh, we're not going to know whether determinism is really true or quantum theory is true or whether relativity and quantum, how they go together for a very, very long time. And we may never know whether it's true or not. In the meantime, we have to figure out how to live. So there's sure. a pragmatic dimension to my own. Right. Uh, way of thinking too, and uh, I I said there, I uh, the other writers in here took different views. Uh, Dirk Parabum is a well-known free will skeptic. Uh, Fisher was a compatibilist. I was the the view I hold is called libertarian free will, uh, incompatibilist free will, and the fourth fellow is a revisionist, uh, Manuel Vargas. He was the editor, uh, and uh, I said, well, I said. Yes, I would have to give it up then. But I said it would be a very disappointing day in my life. Uh, and I would have to, and I would indeed choose one of your three other views. I don't know which one it would be. And I said, uh, to me, it would be like being told I had to either live in the middle of a jungle <laughs> or on the South Pole, right? Or in the middle of a desert. And then I said, can I take three weeks in, in Hawaii before I decide? <laughs> That's the way I put it to them. So in a way, you're right. I mean, the pragmatic dimension comes into this, and we have to be pragmatic. But uh, it's a, 
to me, it's a question of what we sort of believe underneath for the long run. And it is an open scientific question down the road whether everything's determined or not determined and whether possibly we have it. Uh, it's significant in the brain or it isn't and so on. And I admit the scientific uh, consensus now or is that, first of all, that the majority of the scientists think probably quantum theory is true. We'll have some indeterminism even when we combine with relativity. When it comes to the brain, I would say the, the majority view is that uh, indeterminism doesn't play a significant role, uh, although uh, there's a there are a lot of dissenters to that position too. So there are different views here, but, but you're right. We have to be pragmatic no matter what. But I think what philosophers do is say, uh, I'd like to be able to come up with a view of the world which allows you to be pragmatic in this way while feeling, yeah, there's a decent chance I could be right. I don't have a proof, <laughs> right? But there's a decent chance, as opposed to like what Saul says, no, there's no chance, but we'll go with the illusion. <laughs> I think it's better. The pragmatism is, the pragmatism is essential. But how are we going to play it? That's the way I like to put it. I think that's a great way to wrap us up for the day. Okay. I, I know I've taken up uh, oh, most no, of your afternoon here. It's so. been great. You asked some, you asked some really good questions, and I think your, uh, uh, your thoughts are ones that really have to be addressed. Well, once again, Dr. Kane, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks for coming and unpacking a little bit about free will with us. Okay. Well, I enjoy it. <clears throat> Sometimes you want to do some values and some ethics, which is another area that I work in a lot. Absolutely. I may come back. A absolutely. I definitely love to have you on because I think that's that might even be a more, from the pragmatic sense, that's a more it pressing <laughs> element, well, especially for me. I Like I've said, I have, I mean, ugh, you might even consider, I don't even know what I would fault, maybe a, a, a skeptic, a nihilist, um, a solipsist, I don't know, some, something in, yeah. something into that realm. So when it comes to ethics, it's right, very okay. difficult well, you, to figure right, out. Right, okay, well, yeah, we could have a, if, if that's where you are, we could have a good discussion on that as well. And by the way, just I should mention the two ethical books, uh, Through the Mao Mason, uh, Ethics and the Quest for Wisdom. My major free will book is called The Significance of Free Will. Uh, and uh, uh, I have a, you know, a number of other writings on free will. I, I wrote a contemporary introduction to it, which well, beginners might want to look at it, which is a paperback from Oxford University Press. Uh, on, um, and, uh, and, and the other thing, the final thing I might mention, if people really want to get into some technique, you know, get into it a little deeper, is I have a website, which is called Free Will Ethics and Values which you could, you could Google that and find it. Or the, the hashtag or whatever they call those things <laughs> is my full name, roberthillarykane.com. So Robert, H-I-L-1-L-A-R-Y-K-A-N-E, one word, dot com. Okay. All right. So I they, they, people could get in there, but it would be fun to talk about the ethical side of these things. Well, I, I would definitely be honored if you would if you would come back and we could discuss yeah. that at, at a future time. Not, but not for a while, though. Right. Give, oh, give yeah. me a rest. Right, exactly. Actually, you Let put, you rest up. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. <laughs>
All right. Once again, uh, I want to thank Robert, Robert Kane for coming on.